This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. things that I enjoy enjoy doing on this program is exploring the unexplained. Sometimes that leads us to look up and explore what's in the sky and the very credible reports of different sightings that can't be explained as uh, weather balloons or something that has an easy to understand explanation. And sometimes that means looking backwards, looking backwards in the Earth's history. How did ancient civilizations do that? How did artifacts get here? Why do uh, why have certain mythologies developed along similar patterns in different places? Well, I am so excited to talk with uh, our guest for the next hour because he's been somebody that has spent literally years researching, lecturing, writing on both of those issues and where they intersect with one another. He's one of the leading researchers and lecturers who has specialized in ancient civilization technologies. He's been featured on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, Sci-Fi Channel, BBC, been featured on the show Ancient Aliens many times, an acclaimed researcher, lecturer, co-founder of many companies, an incredibly successful entrepreneur. It is a real pleasure to welcome to the program for the first time, Jason Martell. Jason, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Frank. It's a pleasure to be on your show. The pleasure is all mine. Tell folks how you got started with uh, with your work and your research in this in this realm. Yeah, I'd be happy to, and we'll be touching on some of the latest developments tonight. Uh, when I was in college, I was told that there's some artificial structures on Mars, possibly a face and pyramids, and this was in the 1990s. So back then, the climate for that type of information was very skeptical. Even myself, I was like, what? Why would NASA tell us about these things? So I started to research that uh, heavily. It turned out that the principal photographer the company arming the orbiters and landers with cameras was called Mayland Space Science Systems. And it was also located in San Diego where I was attending college. And I called Dr. Mike Malin just as a layman college student and said, hey, is there any possibility that these structures on Mars are artificial? And he said, no, they're all natural weather eroded processes, not created by aliens or us. And that just really piqued my attention. And we'll discuss that tonight. But I started to realize that, well, I'm looking at stuff on Mars and thinking that these are artificial. There's there's structures all over our own planet that we still don't understand our true human origins. So, Frank, that's what led me on this journey of trying to understand that there is a lost connection to some type of a, an advanced race that existed pre-Ice Age. And it's been influencing or did influence all the great ancients that we know of today. But we're now starting to unlock a new version of our history, a prehistory, uh, off the recorded books. Um, and unlocking that is opening up a lot of new doorways into understanding our human origins. The uh, so the I think a lot of people that have gone to college have seen on various dorm room uh, dorm room posters an image of somebody that kind of looks like uh, like Elvis uh, on Mars. Was that the image that sparked your your initial desire to research this further? Uh, if you're speaking of the face on Mars. Right there, right there is there is a, a very large object on the face of Mars that I've been also studying uh, for a couple of decades. And yes, that's initially NASA basically called it the head as it was imaged live in the '70s with the Viking camera, and they dismissed it as a trick of light and shadow. And further evidence over the last two decades has shown that that structure is an actual artificial structure. But we need feet on the ground, you know, people on Mars to actually confirm this type of a discovery of, you know, archaeo-astro archeo, archeo, discoveries on another planet. So 
Um, we'll get there. We're going to be going to Mars in the next couple of years via SpaceX, uh, currently scheduled for 2026, 2027. So game changer time to uh, find out some of these answers. That, that's for sure. You alluded to the, uh, the the lost race that may have been on, on this planet. Yes. How similar do you believe that that race is to the current human race? And what is or what was the timeline for that race's existence on this planet? Yes. Well, those are the key questions, Frank. So that's, I think that's what we're chasing down is what we see now is that there's, you know, across the globe, there's evidence of ancient technology left at all these megalithic sites. And if you go to any of these locations and speak to the local cultures, you know, you hear about these tales of these teachers that appeared uh, way in the past. And and we can equate this to basically uh, the the, the last great flood that we had, the last great cataclysm, cataclysm, you know, 10,000 BC plus. What we're seeing is that all these ancient cultures reference these teachers that appear right after the flood and bring knowledge of agriculture and architecture and astronomy. And so what we've been trying to do is push back the clock in understanding that a lot of these ancient sites are showing us evidence that they existed much earlier than than we previously thought. And so it starts to align up with, again, this, this culture that probably existed, uh, you know, again, pre-Ice Age, and their their remnants and their pieces of knowledge were passed to all the great Sumerian, Mesopotamian, Aztec. Uh, you go around the globe and you see the same evidence of this type of knowledge and architecture and knowledge of astronomy uh, being passed uh, around. And so uh, what we've done over the last couple of decades is really analyze the physical evidence in that if you go to a lot of these ancient sites, you know, we've got a lot of these in, um, you know, in Peru and South America, sites like Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, Teotihuacan, Sacsayhuaman, all of these sites <clears throat> with very intriguing names, they all have uh, site, uh, monuments that are built, uh, megalithic monuments out of stone where the builders were able to articulate stone, some of the hardest stones on earth, granite, diorite, and make most unbelievable cuts of precision blocks fit together without any mortar. And so we look at this evidence and say, wow, okay, so those people at the time of when these cultures existed did not have the technology that we're aware of to heat stone to this type of temperature uh, make these types of uh, mathematical alignments so precision uh, in, in their nature. And so it raises a lot of questions as to how they were able to do this and who could have possibly have taught them. And so that's what we've been tracking down. And there's other pieces, too, that we'll discuss, Frank, that deal with star alignments and, and geological data. But a lot of things are starting to point to, well, who are these people? Where did they go? And we're we're basically being forced to roll back the clock of time uh, much further than what these sites were attributed to at their current dates of creation. So um, based on what you just said, obviously one of the questions that I think always gets talked about in bars and on radio shows and maybe even in the halls of academia is the uh, the ancient pyramids of Egypt. There's always a lot of wonderment about how an ancient civilization could have had the technology to build those pyramids. Do those pyramids fit the example of the kind of the kind of uh, formations, the kinds of technology that you're talking about? They do, and that's a perfect segue excuse me, into giving some you know, examples of evidence. So the Giza pyramids are you know, a, a work of art that we attribute to the Egyptian culture, having created those at roughly around 2500 BC. There are um, hieroglyphics and inscriptions. Uh, Dr. Zahi Hawass and others have found what they consider to be the site of the burial of the actual pyramid builders and texts that explain them building the pyramids, I could interpret those as saying they were also perhaps just doing a makeover of the pyramids. Just because I live in a current house and I pay rent doesn't mean that I necessarily built the house as well. So there's controversial stories around, um, you know, the date of the pyramids simply because 
when we look at just the Egyptian evidence of the date to say that, you know, this culture at this time was doing this for Khufu and, and, and what have you, there's another way to look at this, which is astronomical and geological data, which is starting to point to much older dates. So what we can do is with the Giza pyramids, there's enough evidence to show that it's basically a terrestrial map on the ground mirroring the Orion constellation. Now, the Orion constellation is three stars perfectly aligned with the top one slightly offset. If you look at the pyramids from a satellite image, you'll see that they're exactly that, three pyramids in a row with the top small one slightly offset. And it turns out that if you use advanced software to map the sky, redshift, others, you can know exactly when the stars will be and in what position. You can also roll back the time and see where the stars were and in what position. And it turns out that in 10,500 B.C., not 2,500 B.C., 10,500 B.C., Orion is directly above the three pyramids of Giza, Mm. literally mirroring it in the sky. And at that same time, uh, the Sphinx is gazing directly east into the constellation of Leo, which is a lion. So that's one example where whoever built the pyramids built them as a terrestrial alignment to map to the date at 10,500 BC using star markers. So that would be one suggestion. And then quickly, another one is geological evidence. If you look at the inner walls of the Sphinx, the enclosure of it, remember when they first found the Sphinx, it was covered in sand. You know, it's been covered by time and you had to uncover it and even uncovering it, removing all of the sand. The inner walls of the structure showed massive weather erosion. Um, there's been many geologists who have looked at this and said, well, there's, there's really no way that this type of water exposure could have happened unless it was massive amounts of water running over the surface. And the last time massive amounts of water were running over the surface of Giza, 10,000 B.C. plus. So that's one example of where, you know, Giza says, yeah, it was built by Egyptians 2,500 B.C., but the geological evidence, the astronomical star alignments tell us a different date. Uh, that's fascinating. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Jason Martell, author, lecturer, entrepreneur. You can check out his website, Jason Martell, M-A-R-T-E-L-L dot com. And if anyone's tempted to uh, dismiss Jason as uh, some sort of a, a, a crackpot or a crank, uh, the work that you do, Jason, both as a researcher and in the business community, in, in addition to researching ancient civilizations, you are uh, oftentimes firmly in within the bounds of what they consider mainstream science, right? As a senior interactive programmer, as an Internet designer, you've worked with some of the leading technology companies all over the world, right? I have. I've kind of worn two hats in my career. Uh, my, my professional skill set has allowed me to work on modern technology and uh, then, obviously, my fascination is with ancient technology. And so over the years, I've been thankfully in a position to you know, fund some of my research and projects where uh, looking at ancient cultures or ancient languages, let's say like Sumerian cuneiform script. I can't read Sumerian cuneiform script, but I can definitely hire linguists to give me feedback and understanding. And so that's kind of what I've been you know, thankfully in a position to do over the years is just, you know, uh, uh, fund some of the research as well as be involved. So it's a very exciting time to be following along in, 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 in you know, the lines of research. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there has been an explosion of interest in recent years, namely pr- probably because of the uh, History Channel show that you've been featured on many times in what they call the ancient alien or ancient astronaut hypothesis. And uh, a lot of people probably know about it from the show on the History Channel, but in case they don't, another fellow that's been featured on that show, uh, Giorgio Sakoulis, publisher of Legendary Times, he kind of broke down the basics of the ancient astronaut theory on National Geographic. The ancient astronaut theory tries to establish whether or not extraterrestrials visited Earth in the remote past. The Mahabharata, an ancient Indian epic, which is their equivalent of the Bible, is packed with stories of gods which a long, long time ago flew around in marvelous golden sky ships referred to as Vimanas. 
they were also very specific in mentioning that they are machines made out of metal. It describes their weaponry, that some of the Imanis had the capability of cloaking themselves to become invisible. All crazy science fiction type stuff. But was it really science fiction? That's the big question. These cosmic eggs appear in virtually every single creation story of each culture all around the world. They all begin the same way that one day the heavens opened and this silver cosmic egg descended from the sky and these gods came out of these eggs and taught mankind in various disciplines. Uh, Jason, does Giorgio have the basics of the ancient astronaut theory correct? And uh, is there anything that you'd add into giving our listeners sort of a, a primer into understanding the basics of the ancient astronaut theory? I would, but I'm going to throw a twist in there. I'm obviously a large proponent of the ancient astronaut theory, and Giorgio is a good friend and colleague. Where I start to differ from the traditional line of research around ancient aliens is, yes, we've been looking into many sites around the world, and they do so sites, you know, uh, show evidence of um, the power of flight being shown uh, and understood and listed, various other technologies. And where I am starting to draw a line in difference is to say that I don't think necessarily everything is, is influenced by extraterrestrials. There's a strong amount of evidence to suggest that what we're seeing is evidence for a lost race that was highly advanced. Now, were they completely human, this pre-Ice Age civilization? Not sure. Their physical characteristics are much uh, taller than us. Um, that's one of the key things of this uh, <clears throat> line of research is investigating these, these heroes, these gods that show up after the flood. Um, there's also strong reports that they were much taller in nature, a physical, larger being. Um, and so what we have are burial sites, for instance, all over North America, Native American sites, uh, archaeological digs with citations of actual bones and people found that are between 6.7 and 7 feet tall, minimum. And these are females as well. Um, there is physical evidence of a taller people again, that we're here as teachers. And I think what I'm starting to lean towards is not so much addressing everything to say that, you know, ancient astronaut theory explained that directly. There is a lot of intervention and stories uh, from other places that appear to be in the solar system or, you know, in our, in our galaxy, other star systems, Cirrus, Pleiades. But the overwhelming amount of evidence, <clears throat> excuse me, is suggesting to me that there is a lost race just pre-Ice Age that we're, we're still trying to unlock who they were and where they came from, but not necessarily directly extraterrestrial. Uh, look, we're going to take a, a quick break, and we're going to continue with Jason Martell. If you have questions, we're going to try and get to as many of them as we can. I have a lot, so uh, we'll, we'll get to some of you for sure, but we'll give my questions precedent. You can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Jason Martell joining me uh, to discuss what might have been going on on this planet and maybe some other planets many, many, many years ago. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Tomorrow, will the sun shine on you? Ooh. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, talking with Jason Martell, acclaimed researcher, author, and lecturer on ancient civilizations. He's also a noted TV personality featured regularly on the History Channel, Sci-Fi Channel, uh, you name it. Uh, Jason, you were talking a minute ago about physical evidence of very almost giant-like beings, large beings that have been found. In uh, Genesis chapter 6, there's a reference to something called Nephilim, and it says right in the, right in the book of Genesis there were giants in those days. Do, do you think that the beings you're talking about, this, these pre-Ice Age beings, could have been the Nephilim that are referred to in Genesis? It's very possible. I think every culture has this reference, again, of great heroes or deities that are looked upon as actual gods. And they, they seem to have been, again, they, they never come down. They never seem to like come down from the mountains or across the lakes or from the oceans. They come down from the sky. So it's led us to believe initially that maybe these are extraterrestrial. These are beings just simply coming from other worlds, which Nothing's black and white. That might be part of the case also. But the overwhelming amount of evidence is starting to point to the fact that there's a lost culture, a race of people that had technology, that had the capability of flight and advanced uh, you know, um, navigation of the seas. We see this because of, again, evidence that uh, suggests knowledge has been passed down to ancient people that there's just a missing variable, which is the technological angle. So um, a couple of maps, several of them have been circulating over the years. One's called the Perry Reese map. There's Charles Hapgood. There's the Arontis Phineas map. And all of these, just starting with Perry Reese map, they show a time when Earth's continents were still connected. And this one map is an example. The Perry Reese map is written by a Turkish admiral, and he even says that this map is compiled. He writes on the, on the map, it's compiled from sources of 20 other ancient maps. And so what's really interesting about just the Perry Reese map alone is you see an accurate, an accurate topography of the coastline, but the coastline shows the continent still connected. You see the actual poles, uh, uh, you know, North and South Pole, with accurate topography listed. Now, right now, there's an ice sheet over Antarctica that's a mile thick. Now, for someone, for one, to have the aerial perspective to map the coastline accurately, don't know how they did that. Two, how did they use ground-penetrating radar or something of that nature to see through the ice a mile thick and somehow accurately write the topography of land versus ice, meaning they have the landmass of Antarctica defined with no ice, and it's it's right. Mm. So there's a lot of evidence that shows, one, well, how were ancient cultures spreading this information? Is there a way that they were once connected? Yes. If we roll back the clock far enough, we can see that geological changes show us that at one point the continents were connected. And using that knowledge as a base, you start to understand that there's you know, an, a, evidence of people having an awareness of navigating the ocean, trade routes that were taking place, much more ancient than, than we understand today. So the evidence is starting to suggest that this race that came around right after the flood came down from the skies, teaching agriculture and knowledge, not necessarily extraterrestrial, but a lost technological race that also might have been perhaps the watchers had the ability to, you know, uh, leave the planet, do other things on other, um, you know, nearby planets on, on the moon, on Mars, which we'll discuss some of that evidence. But it starts to roll back the clocks and make more sense in alignment towards, again, something happening on Earth that's just a lost epoch of time that we're still trying to unlock. And, and what do, do you believe? Do you have a theory as to what became of that race and why the uh, beings that that uh, came about subsequently on this planet had to sort of relearn those sort of technological innovations that that race had seemingly already mastered? Well, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And one of the other areas that I research is called the lost cycle of time. Most people think of time as linear, meaning... If we go back far enough, people are just, you know, 
hunter-gatherers, and if we go up to today, they're more advanced technological. That's not the case. It turns out, over, it turns out that over 30 ancient cultures were tracking a system of time that is a much larger cycle. Today we call it procession. It's about a 26,000, roughly maybe 24,000-year cycle, depending on how you compute the math. But it basically shows that many ancient cultures were tracking a system of time that's much larger than we understand today. And so we go through things that people have heard of called the Dark Ages or a Golden Age. And it turns out that we're still trying to unlock exactly how this influences the rise and fall of civilization here on Earth. But there seems to be a connection in that just by natural causes, we seem to over time drift over thousands of years. It's calculated to be a 24,000 year cycle. So in, in a 12,000 year cycle, we descend into the dark ages and lose all of this knowledge. And then we go into another 12,000 year cycle of coming back around and we regain all this knowledge to the point where in the upper parts of this 12,000 year cycle, uh, towards the end, uh, ancient uh, Hindu texts and others speak of a time when man is actually able to interpret God. Uh, we're, we're very far from that point currently. So what I'm trying to stress is there's enough evidence to suggest man goes through these phases of evolution where we reach a height, a height uh, in capability of being able to do things and maybe even communicate uh, just at a basic level with other cultures that are even not from this planet. But then we lose that knowledge. So we seem to have some type of case of amnesia of trying to understand hmm. this lost connection of the ancient knowledge. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the cultures today use a system of time, kind of like a grand clock in the sky where we've mapped the 12 houses of the Zodiac. There's 12 stars where every 2,000 years, our North Star changes to this new point in space. And that's basically us using this system. So, so there's 12 points in the heavens where we kind of move as a clock. And the ancients use that knowledge to coordinate how they aligned monuments uh, to various stars, meaning Orion, which we talked about earlier. You know, pe people look at that and say, well, it looks like Orion, but why doesn't it match up now? When we roll back the star date to 10,500 BC, now we have an alignment. So there's this encoded knowledge based on astronomical understandings and the movements of the heavens and the monuments on the ground. And so that's the part, Frank, really that is trying to be mm. unlocked today, even shows that are currently airing like Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix, my colleague Graham Hancock. Again, it's just using the latest astronomical data to understand where certain stars or the sun and the moon passed in the heavens and these monuments that have been built were markers that kind of aligned very accurately to these points, but maybe not today, right? So we have to roll back the time and look for when these alignments are taking place. It's kind of like a signal or a flag being thrown to say, hey, look, I want your attention to see this date. And that's the system of time that they used and way of doing it. Um, you, all right, we've covered the ancient civilization that might have, or the ancient race that might have existed on this planet. You alluded to the possibility of them existing on other planets as well. Beyond that face uh, structure that we've seen on Mars, uh, is there any evidence on other planets to suggest that they might have been out there years ago? So the current the current knowledge of trying to unlock what's happening in space or is there you know advanced ruins on the moon or, or mars these are questions obviously that have been you know analyzed for some time but without having actual people there it's not easy to answer and the agencies in charge of this data have not been forthcoming uh and 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 in some cases you know um, restricting access to the actual data so it's a it's a difficult answer to have a positive breakdown. And, and I'll give people another example. Again, Graham Hancock's special right now on Ancient Apocalypse, he talks about how he wants to go investigate the Serpent Mound in Ohio. They literally respond to him with a bias saying, no, 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 your theories don't align with our current views of archaeology. We're going to deny you access. You cannot do research. Wrong answer. 
that publicly exposes and shows the type of things we have to deal deal with with censorship censorship excuse me from current modern archaeology imagine how that extends when we talk about archaeology on mars so the established set of principles around looking for evidence of a lost civilization on mars uh, receives a lot of pushback and denial from the established uh, set of science principles but that is true science is to push that framework so uh, despite that in place, there is still enough evidence in NASA archives from Mars Global Surveyor, Malin Space Science Systems, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and a handful of others. And now also non-U.S. companies, um, Japan, European Space Agency, ESA, all have cameras. And so now we have a, a bigger set of data. And in looking at Mars specifically, of my interest, there is this area called Cydonia where there's a face and pyramids built right on an ancient shoreline. So another piece that really fascinated me was, you know, if we look at cultural understandings here on Earth, most cultures were built right next to a, a, a waterway. Having access to some type of lake or a river uh, was always a, a great feature. Everyone loves waterfront property, even today. Well, that seems to be the case on Mars as well. This ancient city of Cydonia is built right on an ancient shoreline. The face is situated out in a body of water. You can clearly see a terrestrial change that when pointed out and looked at from this angle, here's an ancient city right on a shoreline and they built a monument of a huge face that can be viewed from any angle of the shore. Uh, to me, that definitely raised a signal of saying, wow, this is similar of some type of a Mars Earth connection. And when we look at that face under scrutiny, scrutiny and heavy analysis, uh, it's shown to be very much sphinx-like. It's a face that has lionistic characteristics. It's got a headdress that's Egyptian. So it, it does raise a lot of questions, Frank. And for me, um, the, the key point there is time. And if we roll back the time for uh, the, the, the Mars atmosphere and the changes that have happened, it's very possible that the poles of Mars have moved over time. Hmm. And if we incorporate some of that knowledge, again, thinking about the movements in the heavens, it turns out that if we roll back to around 280,000 years ago, the face on Mars is situated right on the equator, just rotating around like a big beacon saying hi. And it almost denotes that it's wanting to point to or give evidence of life on Earth. So, I would say that there is strong evidence, and, and we didn't even talk about the structures on the moon, but there's strong evidence to suggest that this, this race was not only building structures here on Earth, but possibly on the moon as well as Mars at a time when we just don't understand you know, parts of our sure. lost civilization that could have gone back that far. Are you convinced that the pre-Ice Age civilization that we're talking about on this planet, are you convinced that it was one race or do you leave the door open to there potentially being multiple races in different time periods or on different portions of the globe? I think that's fair to think that there's probably been multiple races, but at this point in time, I'm leaning towards one lost race that existed here on Earth, and we think about the time of Atlantis and uh, other continents right off the coast of India. There's a, a literally a, a sunken continent or a city, if you will, very large called Dwarka. Um, Yanaguni in Japan, the Bimini Road in in uh, you know the Bahamas. There's lots of evidence that that suggests there was something uh, you know happening, but it's so far off the recorded books, it's, it's very difficult to understand, um, you know, the nature of these sites until more evidence is, you know, put forth. Do you believe that there's an evolutionarily, an evolutionary link between modern humans and this pre-Ice Age ra race, or is it a, an Etch-a-Sketch situation where the planet was essentially shook and started over, at least when it comes to humans? You know, that's a good question. You know, when you ask again about other races, uh, being in the mix, that's that's part of what we're trying to understand is that a lot of these sites also, or these cultures, reference specific star systems, either Cirrus, Pleiades, and some of these cultures, there's, like, there's no way they could even understand some of the knowledge that they have 
there are tribes in Africa that have been monitoring the Cirrus star system, Cirrus A and B, and they have knowledge, in fact, that it's actually two stars, Cirrus A and B, and, and you can't even see this with the naked eye, and, and they you know, have accurate understandings of some of the orbital placements of these stars and how they look with, with you know, the aid of a telescope. Uh, it really starts to raise a question around how they have this information. So, you know, it's something that we still need to, you know, look into further. Talking with Jason Martell, researcher, lecturer, author, TV personality. Why do you call your book Knowledge Apocalypse? Well, it's funny, too, because there's now a show called Ancient Apocalypse with Graham Hancock, and it's a, a little bit of a crossover there. Knowledge Apocalypse is basically my way of saying that, you know, an apocalypse is like a revelation in knowledge, it's something being hidden that is, you know, instantly brought forth to mankind. So I think for me, I'm, I've been very much overwhelmed in the last 20 years of research that there's this awakening of knowledge that the general public has not been as interested in or aware of, um, but it's definitely been a quickening effect for people to not only become aware of this, but then realize, wow, this might answer a lot more questions I have when previously told that there's either a science view to look at from our history or a religious view to look at from our history. And combining those gives us kind of a little bit more of a open-minded realm of possibilities. So I think it's a healthy, I think it's a healthy approach, uh, you know, to investigate and, and to question norms that we have today. What is ancient school? Ancient school was a project I put together where I just wanted to dive into some of these topics around the ancient astronaut theory in more detail. So at the time, you know, when we discuss these topics like on shows like Ancient Aliens and such, you know, everything has, uh, you know, a script and an agenda to talk about that's maybe not specifically driven around my line of research. And so in ancient school, I just kind of dive very specifically into what we're talking about tonight around, you know, these structures on Mars, some of the technological evidence around the world left by this race of, you know, advanced technology, advanced, archeo- uh, advanced um, architecture. Um, and so I, I think, you know, ancient school and even going forward is, is to just bring people's awareness that there's this line of research going on. I don't think most people are even aware that there are these connections being made. We've all heard pieces of this, right? Like you mentioned sure. earlier, giants upon the earth, that sort of thing. But there's, there's, there's little pieces uh, of this all, when we put it into the right view, start to form you know, a better picture of the puzzle. And so that's, it's exciting that we're finally starting to make some inroads uh, you know, on this advanced topic. Obviously, there's been the Mars Curiosity rover that has been uh, transmitting information back uh, to this planet. And a lot of people have cited this as something that's uh, really groundbreaking in terms of Martian exploration. Is any of the information or any of the images that we're getting from this Mars rover, does any of that support the notion that there might have been some sort of ancient civilization on Mars years ago? Yeah, most definitely. A lot of the rovers and landers have been basically showing us evidence that they're, uh, you know, Mars was once alive. Uh, they've been landing in an area called uh, Arius, Arius. Oh, man, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong at the moment. But it's uh, they've been basically investigating an ancient sh- uh, shoreline where most of the landers find evidence for amino acids and such that would point to some type of ancient saltwater being on Mars. And so the idea that there was once water on Mars raises the question, obviously, for life. And if you look through some of the NASA archives, what's really caught my attention, and I'm surprised it's not on like, you know, MSNBC or CNN, is that there's quite a bit of vegetation actually on the surface of Mars now. Most of the NASA imagery just is filmed in black and white, um, but you can see that some of the other imagery from ESA uh, shows the same areas that NASA films in black and white. They film it in color, um, and we have to wonder if we're not actually seeing on some of these areas what look like some type of a, 
chlorophyll or vegetation, uh, also combined with large bodies of water, uh, freeform water standing on the surface. And so that's what I show in, in, in my lectures is that there's literally evidence in the NASA archives of what appear to be um, even a living Mars that exists today in some form. So that's, you know, something that, again, people on Mars, actual researchers, it's going to make it a lot easier for us to confirm this evidence. But there's strong evidence to suggest that Mars was once uh, very much alive and the idea that it supported life. There's, again, you know, those check boxes are being checked off. So there's, there's definitely a, a, you know, a groundwork there to say, yes, it's possible that an ancient civilization did exist on Mars and that Mars was once very much an alive planet. But again, we're talking about a time frame that's, um, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even possibly millions of years ago. So, you know, these structures on Mars raise a lot of questions into understanding just how far back we really go if they're, you know, actually connected to us. All right. I'm going to take one more break, and then we're going to get to uh, some listener calls. Anybody that has questions for Jason Martell, you can give us a call right now at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Talking about ancient civilizations that might have existed on this planet pre-Ice Age. It's wild stuff when you think about it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's a god awful small affair to the girl with the mousy hair, but her mummy is yelling no, and her daddy has told her to go. But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen this is David Bowie, Life on Mars, joined by Jason Martell. We are not even scratching the surface of uh, the work that Jason has done in terms of researching ancient civilizations, the technologies of ancient civilizations. Uh, you could check out his book, Knowledge Apocalypse. That's available on Amazon. You could also check out uh, Jason's website at jasonmartell.com. A ton of interesting information on there. Jason, a ton of people have questions for you. I'm going to try and get to as many of them as we can here. 800-848-9222. And to everybody that's on hold, I just ask that you try to get right to your point and keep your questions brief so that we can allow Jason to answer and then give as many people as we can an opportunity to ask whatever they want. Igor is in Fairfield, New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Yes. Thank you, Frank. Uh, if I heard right, I believe you said that you you said that there was some evidence of pyramids or some structures on the moon. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. There are structures on the moon uh, that have been filmed, a tower, various things and craters, stuff on the dark side of the moon. The, the structures on the moon aren't my speciality, but I'm obviously aware of the same principles that have existed for filming things on Mars as well as on the moon. You know, all of this imagery is controlled by essentially NASA, so we have to use them as a gate to understand, are we seeing all of the evidence? And based on their track record of sharing and their agreement with the um, uh, agency in charge of basically saying, hey, let's you know not share this with the public, the Brookings Institute, um, it, it's clear that if there are structures on the moon or on Mars with pyramids and that sort of thing, it's being uh, – you know, withheld uh, from the general nature of the public. Uh, so, Jason, to that point, it's, if NASA is withholding information from the public, you alluded to that Brookings Institute report, which I think is a, a number of decades old, that indicated that the public would not handle this sort of information well. What, how do you think the public would handle information about this kind of thing if NASA to, were to be more forthcoming about it? It's a deeper topic, Frank, that one needs to understand from the ufological angle, and this is where it gets confusing. Over the last 60 years, there's a cover-up in place to desensitize and confuse the public. It's happening even right now into today, um, changing the word UFO to UAP, having things like ATIP, uh, Blue Book, 
Project Grunge. It goes on and on. They appoint these task force to say, we're looking into the subject of UFOs, and we'll give you an official answer, and it never goes anywhere. It's always a smokescreen. So understanding that the lens to look at these topics is obfuscated by you know a program of saying, we don't want you to know the truth, <clears throat> makes it very difficult to answer these questions. And you have to understand that that is in place, and it's a very hard topic to, one, acknowledge or pierce through the understandings. It takes, you know, people who have been studying this a long time to see the patterns of how this type of information is handled by the agencies in charge. And I don't fault NASA or any of these three-letter agencies doing this because they, you know, are doing it for reasons that are for national security or things that the public is just not in charge of. What I'm interested in is the fact that there's, you know, a, a precipice coming and change where that security blanket, that that quietness of not admitting anything about UFOs, aliens, Area 51, S4, and a bunch of other stuff, is that you know the, the public needs to become aware of this on terms that's not going to freak them out. So yes, relating back to the Brookings report, we still to this day have an overwhelming you know sociological issue. Hmm. If they were all of a sudden on CNN to say UFOs are uh, on uh, hovering over every continent tonight, uh, we're not sure what's going on. Um, but I would say that if that happens, if all of a sudden we wake up one day and there's UFOs all over the skies or something of that nature, I would issue a word of caution. Um, because, again, the, the, the things in place now, there's been events that kind of push us towards um, what we are allowed to believe, and what we're supposed to believe. And one of those scenarios is possibly saying, hey, let's do an alien threat to unite the world. Even Ronald Reagan talked about this. What if there was possibly an outside threat and it would make all of the nations unite? That still exists today, and I think it's a card that hasn't been played yet by the powers that be to further help us get aligned into a one-world civilization. So, you know, the topic around aliens and UFOs is very confusing at the top level because there is something obfuscated happening, and I don't know how it's going to break to the public. Uh, we have most likely have a huge space force that's been in existence for you know, multiple decades and being completely hidden from the public. And all the only trace that we can put to it is to go, huh, you guys lost $4 trillion in black budget stuff. $4 trillion. Um, where the F did it go? Mm. Well, they built a private space force and have been doing that for 50 years. One of the most famous NASA astronauts of all time and really a pioneer in terms of space travel has been uh, Buzz Aldrin. Now, he's been someone that's been willing to raise some questions and actually be pretty outspoken on some things that don't exactly always fit with NASA's narrative. He was on uh, the Sci-Fi Channel a couple of years ago describing seeing what sounds very much like a UFO or UAP experience. I saw this illumination that was moving with respect to the stars. We were smart enough to not say, uh, Houston, there's a light out there that's following us. So technically, it becomes an unidentified flying object. What, what do you make of that and similar comments from someone like Buzz Aldrin, Jason? Buzz, Buzz has a different mind frame. It might be connected to the ability to have a say in this without breaking clearance. Um, let's give it time and wait till he is ready to disclose more. There have been others in his position that upon leaving this planet, leave us with a gift of knowledge. One of them was Philip Corso, wrote a book called The Day After Roswell. Again, he is on record for his clearances and his participation in the military for reverse engineering advanced technolo technologies that we would get from downed craft and put that into commercial use. That was not just German technology. It was alien technology. He even tells us things like Roswell, how they reverse engineered it and found night vision, fiber optic technology, time travel, a bunch of these things that people on the outside would be like, what? This can't be. Unfortunately, it is. And it's just very hard pill for people to swallow. But again, like there is strong evidence in the public domain. It's just it's again, it's a. Uh, it's kind of a matrix, matrix effect for people to actually realize that these things are happening. So, again, I think it's a desensitizing of the public, and I'm aware that it's been happening through media and other sources. 
So it's just a very exciting time to see where the ball is going to drop or how this is going to land. Uh, Very quickly here, John in Freehold has a question. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Hey, uh, Jason. Um, It's a pleasure talking to you guys. Uh, Jason, I was just wondering if if you've had a chance to meet with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer and if you would align yourself with him over somebody like uh, Jeremy Corbell, who he says is just putting out false information. Right. Well, that's a pretty esoteric question. Thank you. Um, I'm aware of both individuals. Stephen Greer, I've had mixed feelings on over the years. I'd say that my view on him today is that um, he comes from a good place. I think the research and things that he does with his CE5 initiatives and having a mental mindset of how you contact aliens or interact with them, I'm not going to get into detail, but I think that is interesting and there's some you know, there's some good groundwork there. He's been in the trenches for a long time doing the work, putting his hands in the dirt, Dr. Stephen Greer, so I'll give him credit for that. This new gentleman that you mentioned, yeah, you know, there's going to be new players on the field. and We just have to uh, allow for that. Um, I, I, I would say that some of these new players, again, are just recirculating the evidence that has existed for decades and are now just bringing their own opinion mm-hmm. to it. Um, and that's probably the case with, uh, you know, the names you mentioned, uh, but it's all in the, in the right effort to open the box and get us the truth. So I, I encourage it. Jason, uh, it is a real treat to talk with you. I hope we could do this again soon. I hope people check out Knowledge Apocalypse and I hope they go to jasonmartell.com. Thanks very much. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Good night. All right. Uh, Jason Martell, you want to comment on any portion you can. Meantime, uh, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.